Hello, welcome back to Let's Talk Title with Emmercoast Title Services, and welcome to our 21st episode. 21 episodes. I know. Legal drinking age. I'm Dion Moniz, host and president of ACTS. And I'm Ashley Bowen, director of operations and co-host of this podcast. Yes. So today we're going to talk about 1031 exchanges. And uh, we typically spend an hour and a half going over this in depth, uh, but we're going to give you the highlights. So if you have any questions following this, you can feel free to reach out to us. A quick disclaimer, we're not tax experts, we're not CPAs, so just keep that in mind. And we're also not a qualified intermediary, um, but we work closely with several who are. Yes, exactly. And we'll get into the importance of a QI in, in a few minutes. So what I want to do first, Ashley, is I want to talk about the the five types of exchanges, and then we'll get into the common elements. How about, what is a 1031 exchange? So that's a good idea. All right, so <laughs> let's, start, let's take it from the top. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you tell everyone what a 1031 exchange is? So it is a, um, it's a federal rule. Um, it is a t 1031 tax deferred exchange. So whenever um, an individual goes to sell a piece of investment property instead of paying capital gains on the proceeds of that sale, they can 1031 exchange um, the proceeds, they can exchange this property for another like-kind property, and then they're not having to pay those capital gains taxes. So it is kind of a way to get around paying your taxes. At least temporarily, but yes. Temporarily. It, so the, the, the different types of exchanges are you've got your simultaneous exchange, which is when you sell what's called the relinquished property, which is the property you own that you're selling, and then you purchase the replacement property. Obviously, that's the property you're replacing. You can do that at the same time, On the same day. So it's that's... just like a simultaneous closing, but it's a simultaneous <clears throat> exchange if you've got the 1031 exchange element involved. Exactly. Next one's the delayed exchange, which is really what we're going to talk about today. That's when you sell the relinquished property and then within 180 days you have to buy the replacement property. So that's what we're going to focus on. Next is the reverse exchange. When you actually buy property first and hold it under uh, an EAT, which we'll get into in a minute, uh, and then you have 180 days to sell your property. That's a lot more complicated. It is, but in this market, it might be easier. <laughs> Just well, true. because it's going to take a lot less time to sell a piece of property in this market than it is to find one and go under contract. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So we probably might, well, we might start seeing more of those actually. I think we might. But the reverse exchanges are more complicated. It requires a third party to hold title in the property. Like I said, it's an EAT. Uh, and then it, it costs a lot more. It's around $5,000 in fees versus the standard 800 to 1,000 for the simultaneous or, or delayed exchange. All right, so other than those, you have a build to suit exchange, which is actually where you can buy property and have it constructed or have improvements uh, constructed and all that money that goes into the improvements count towards the 1031. Now it all has to be done by the 180 days. Which uh, could be a problem. Which could be a problem. And you've seen Today that. Today it is a problem. And you've seen that happen where the, they failed the exchange because the property, the construction wasn't complete in right. time. Exactly. So that's the biggest challenge with the build to suit exchange uh, type is that with construction delays, uh, material supply chain issues that we have today, it's almost impossible to have it all done. So really the only way to get it done these days is to have the seller of the property go ahead and get all the improvements done before you buy it as the replacement property. Otherwise, if you're trying to do it all with your money before the 180 days is up, you're not gonna, run in, you're not gonna succeed. I've had two clients now that lost their 
tax protection because they weren't the improvements weren't finished in time. Um, and then the, uh, the last one is personal property exchange. You can actually have a 1031 for some personal property. It gets a little tricky, and that's probably not one we're going to touch on a whole lot. Um, but, but keep in mind, if you have something like a hotel or a furnished condo that you're selling. Hospital the, equipment, farm equipment. Yeah. So that type stuff uh, would qualify. So you can actually have, if you're selling a hotel and buying another hotel, the dirt and the real property would be one type of exchange. And then the personal property, the FF&E uh, within the hotel would be the personal property portion of the exchange. So anyway, those are all the types of exchanges. Okay. All right, so now let's get into the main criteria for a delayed exchange. And all these criteria apply except for the timing elements that we're gonna get into. But again, this is the most popular version. Um, so first factor is it has to be an investment property and it has to be the same taxpayer. So this taxpayer that's selling the property has to be the same taxpayer that's buying the property. So that means that if you own a piece of property in your LLC, you wanna do an exchange, you're gonna to have to take title in that <clears throat> same LLC. That's right. Or if you own property as husband and wife, the property that you replace it with, you also must take title as husband and wife. You can't take title as whatever LLC that you guys have formed. That's right. It has to be identical across the fence. Um, now, the one uh, exception to that is if it's a single member LLC. In Florida, a single member LLC, which means I own 100% of the LLC that I just created, so it's Moniz LLC. That's considered an alter ego in Florida. And so you can actually have an individual that is selling the relinquished property. I can have my single member LLC as the owner of the replacement property. And there it is considered identical across the fence because of the alter ego argument uh, under Florida. Okay, good to know. And then it has to be for like kind property is the definition, like what is the definition of like kind property? Does it have to be a condo to a condo? or land to land? It just has to be investment property to investment property. Okay. And so that's really the main criteria. It has to be property that you own for the perf per purpose of investment. And typically that means you're renting it out. You're making income on it, right? You can't buy a property uh, with the hope of capital appreciation. That's not what they consider uh, an investment property unless it's long-term capital appreciation. There's a little wiggle room there. If you're buying vacant land and you're going to sit on that for a while and then flip it into another property, that could qualify. But if you're buying a condo and you're just going to say in two years you hope it's worth more, that's not really what they mean by investment. They want you, you got to be renting it out, making income on it. And there's also a lot of, it, it's not a second home does not qualify because that is not considered investment. And there are rules that... It might qualify, but go ahead. Well, but there are some rules that... Um, qualify it even if you were to stay in it a, you know a few days out of the year it can still be considered investment what are those rules so if you and that's what we'll go over next is what kind of investment properties do qualify and don't um, so it could be if you have a second home or vacation property it could actually qualify as investment property so long as you meet both of these criteria um, it has to be rented for at least 14 days per calendar year at fair market value and then you personally can't stay there. It's the greater of 14 days or 10% of the number of days that you've rented it. And so I've got some examples that we can go through that kind okay, of, that kind <laughs> of uh, set this out. 
So if you own the property for two years and you rent it out for 20 days, you can stay in it for 13 days, all right? Okay. If you own it for two years, you rent it out for 200 days, and you can stay in it for up to 20 days because 10% is greater. Uh, and, and I should have said it's actually less than 14 days. So it's 13 days or 10%, uh, whichever is greater. Sorry. Now, if you own it for six months and you've rented it to your family for 200 days, but at only $10 a day, and you stay in it for 20 days, that's actually not going to qualify because it wasn't rented for fair market value. So that's a big factor. It has to be fair market value. So... There are rental companies that if you are going there to maintain the property. This was a good trick we learned. Yes. It won't qualify as a personal stay. So depending on your rental company, if you're actually going there to do work on the property, that's not considered a personal stay and it doesn't count towards the 13 days or 10%. So they will consider it a maintenance day instead of an owner's stay day. So if you have an investment property that maybe one day you might want to do an exchange on, Whenever you go to book it for yourself, book it as a maintenance day. Go paint something or hang a new picture and... and ma yeah, keep <laughs> documentation of that. Because obviously, if you get audited, then the best thing to have to defeat the audit is documentation. Always. So save all your receipts. Maybe take pictures of what you've done uh, so you can show it was an actual maintenance day. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, investment property that doesn't qualify is a fix and flip. And that based on the prior example, if you're buying it for price appreciation just to turn around and sell it, which is typically a fix and flip, um, that doesn't qualify. And then also spec houses don't qualify. So if you build like a spec house and then sell it and then you wanna put your money in to um, build another spec house, that's not considered this type of investment. It won't work. Right, yeah. So primarily just know that you need to be renting it for some period of time. Now. You can actually have a situation where you can convert your personal residence into an investment property. And there's no set rule. Uh, we recommend you do it for at least a year. Two years is kind of the bright line test. Anything for two years or more in the IRS is automatically going to accept But you it. have to um, file, claim all the rental income on your tax returns Correct. because that is what they're going to want to see to prove that you had an investment property. And your mailing address on the top of your tax returns needs to no longer be that property address. That's right. Yep. And that's really the main proof to show that you've converted it from your residence to your investment property. And for the duration that you have it rented out, you cannot be living there, like you just said. Mm -hmm. So you can still stay there up to the 13 days or 10%, but otherwise, no. It needs to be rented and you need to be making income off of it. Yep, exactly. So that's why you want to do it for at least a year because you want that tax return to show that it's now an investment property mm -hmm. and you're claiming rental income on it. All right. So next is the uh, timeline. So you have 45 days from when you close on the sale of the relinquished property. You have to identify, typically it's three properties. You have 45 days to identify up to three properties. You can actually go greater than three properties, but then you get into, so if it's four properties, the total aggregate value of the properties you identified have to be at least 200% of the property that you're selling, the value. And then if you go outside of four properties, then there's a rule that you have to use 95% of the proceeds towards the uh, uh, replacement property, or you totally lose your, all of the protection, not just 
5% of the protection. So there's that 95% rule. Most people just do the three property uh, uh, identification. Like you said earlier, Ashley, this is really hard in this market because everything's in multiple offer situations. And so as soon as a property comes up, you might have it identified as one of your three properties. Then you don't win. And you don't win on the bid or the offer. And that was one of your three properties. Yeah. So you have the whole 45 days. You can, you can put as many replacement lists as you want. The last one that you use to name the replacement properties is the one that counts. At the end of the 45 days, you're locked in. And if you don't close on any of those three properties... Then you've lost. You've lost. Bright line rule, period. Um, now, there was some talk at our prior seminar that the CPA might be able to bend that a little bit. Obviously, it comes down to whether you get audited. And if you don't meet the timelines, you got to be able to defend it. But just know that according to the, the IRS, that 45 day is a, is a, is a set deadline and, and you can't go past it. But again, I defer to your CPAs. Some CPAs might get more creative. So the other deadline after that, you have 180 days from the date of closing on the relinquished property to close on the replacement property or the tax deadline for the tax year that you sold the property in. So if you sell the property in December of 2021, then you don't want to file your taxes in April because then you just cut your 180 days. It's the earlier of. So you want to, you're allowed to extend. They say it's the extended tax deadline. So if you extend to October, then obviously it's the earlier of 180 days, which would be what, May or June. Or that October 15th yeah. deadline. So just be aware of that. That's actually one of the criteria. It's not a flat 180 days. When you file taxes, uh, it does matter. So it's the tax year from which you sold uh, the relinquished property. Okay, good to know. All right. <clears throat> So next up is the uh, hold time. As I said before, if you hold the property for two years, IRS won't even second guess it. Um, anything below that and it starts getting a little gray and it all depends on the amount of documentation you have. So one year it is still doable. We've had some that were only six months where they, they bought the property, they rented it out the entire six months and they wanted to 1031 it and the CPA felt comfortable enough for them to go ahead and do that. So it all depends on the amount of documentation you have. If you've rented it out every single day for the six months you own it, then that's clearly an investment property. You know, if you're only renting out a week or two and it's only been six months, then it gets a little more gray. Mm -hmm. So it depends on, you know, how you've treated the property the whole time. But two years is a definite. Anything below that, you need to talk with your qualified intermediary and or CPA. So what is a QI, qualified intermediary? So it, um, a qualified intermediary is someone who conducts the exchange, they hold the funds in their escrow account. Um, after we close on your sale, we wire the um, proceeds directly to the 10 1031 intermediary. They hold it until it's time for your purchase and then they wire the funds for your purchase to the title company handling your purchase. Um, we are not a qualified intermediary because a qualified intermediary has to be an arm's length away from the transaction. Yeah, so it needs to be an independent party. Emerald yep. Coast Title is not an intermediary <clears throat> and we do not have an intermediary. Right. We have several that we work with, um, but we chose to keep it separate completely. Yeah. So there are, are, are a couple that we work with here locally that we always uh, do very well with. We, we each know how each other works and it works very well. So we'll be happy to recommend those if, if you don't already have a QI to work with. And another tip is that um, the replacement property and 
the relinquished property do not have to be in the same state. That's it can right. Be anywhere in the in the United States. Yep. As long as you're selling investment property to replace the investment property that you just sold, mm -hmm. or buying to replace what you sold. So last two factors, um, you have to trade up. So the property that you're purchasing as the replacement property has to be at least or more, uh, at least the same or greater value than what you sold as the relinquished property. And what if you sold for 400,000 and you're purchasing for 300,000, can you just take the exchange benefits of the exchange on the 300 and then the 100 is what you pay your capital gains on? Yeah, great question. So that 100,000 is actually called boot, which means extra money that isn't protected. I don't know where the boot came from, but I like saying it, mm -hmm. boot. So if you, you, you can do a partial exchange where if it's not a complete trade up, then the difference is taxed at capital gains or ordinary income, depending on how long you've held the property. And obviously that's a CPA question, but yeah, great question. So that means that you don't have to trade up, but if you don't trade up, then there will be tax implications. Right. The only way to get full protection on the money that you're getting on the sale of the relinquished property is to trade up. And something that we won't touch on in depth, but it has to be a trade up both on equity and debt between the relinquished property and the replacement property. So if you had a mortgage on the relinquished property, you got to have a mortgage of uh, equal or greater value uh, or amount on the replacement property. And the equity has to trade up as well. Otherwise, you could run afoul of the rules. And again, this really only gets into the fact that if you get audited, you know, primarily if you meet the timing um, and they're both investment properties, I don't think you're really going to have a problem. But if there's a red flag otherwise and the IRS decides to audit, then that could be one of the ways that you fail is it's got to be a complete trade up between debt and equity uh, across the fence. Okay. Good All right. Know. And then last criteria. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Last. Let's do it. <laughs> last criteria is related party transactions. And that is if you are buying from or selling to a related party, which is simply a member of the family. Okay. You can do it, but the IRS wants to see that property held for at least two years. So if I'm holding, if I'm selling my property to mom and she's going to buy it, well, she can buy it for whatever reason she wants. But in order for me to use that as the relinquished property for the 1031, I have to have held it for at least two years. And then what about mom? Does she have to hold it for two years after the sale or does that not matter? Only if she's going to 1031. Okay. So if mom is selling me one of her other properties that I want to 1031 into, then she has to have held that property for at least two years. Split. Yep, exactly. Okay. Nope. So you can just keep changing, trading properties with mom. Well, and that's kind of what we mentioned a little bit earlier where um, we said that this was a way to get around paying your capital gains taxes and you said, but eventually you, you will have to pay them. Um, we're deferring the tax. It's deferred, exactly. Right, so we're deferring the tax on the first sale, but then whenever you go to sell this property, you can defer the tax again. And you can defer the tax by keep continuing to 1031 into other properties until the day that you die. Yeah, great point. So you can actually avoid it completely if you 1031 all the way up until when you die, then your heirs get the property with a stepped up basis and they don't have to pay taxes. So the only way you end up paying taxes eventually is if you stop doing a 1031 and you end up selling that last property and not buying something else 
then you're going to pay taxes on that transaction. But otherwise, if you, you 1031, your whole life. yep. <laughs> if you defer your whole life until the time you die, then your kids get the property without having to pay the, the taxes on it at that time, and they get a stepped-up basis uh, in value. So, it's good for your heirs. <laughs> <laughs> Not good for you because you're dead. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode. Like I said, that was a very quick uh, summary of all the high points. Uh, but if you have any questions, we'll, we'll be glad to answer them to the extent we can. And or be happy to put you in touch with a qualified intermediary that can answer your questions. Yes. So we appreciate you joining us for our 21st episode. We really want uh, some input on what you want us to talk about next. So, so next time, I think we're going to try to do like a Q&A. Like yes. and ask us anything. And so if you guys have any questions that you would like, even just a short answer on, leave us your question here and we will um, address it in episode 22. Yes, we'd be glad to. All right, so smash that like button. Check us out on all our social media pages. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.